Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was... Uh, one of a few women actually uh, often described as the grandmother of Europe. And Eleanor, uh, certainly a, a well-chosen title for her. She was a, a 12th century French duchess who married two kings. I mean, a lot of people lucky to marry bloody one and she got two under the belt. Um, and then gave birth to a further three as well as two queens on top of that. And she did a lot more than uh, just this, by the way, as well. She ruled as a regent. She went on a crusade. She was involved in uh, rebellions and revolts, sometimes against her own bloody husbands. Uh, she influenced trade and maritime law. She had a huge impact on our conception today of medieval chivalry and courtly love, and also on just what Western Europe uh, developed into, the history both uh, both then and now that developed in her wake. So uh, undoubtedly one of the most powerful women in, in medieval Europe, one of the richest as well. And had an enormous influence, as I say, on French and English royalty politics for a long time after her death even. You've heard, for example, of Richard the Lionheart, for example. He was Eleanor's son. You've heard of King John and the Magna Carta. Also Eleanor's son, King, King John was. She didn't give birth to, to the Magna Carta. That that would that'd really be quite an interesting episode, that one. No, no, she gave birth to King John and then the Magna Carta came out of that one. Anyway, however, you may have heard of these ones. You may not have heard of the Angevin Empire. This was a massive but very short-lived political power block in the 12th and 13th century. Again, direct result of Eleanor and her life. So very important figure in European history, particularly French and English history, Eleanor of Aquitaine. So let's get to it and have a chat about her, her life and, of course, her legacy as well. We're going all the way back, going all the way back here to the early 12th century. We're going about, about around uh, almost exactly 900 years here. Our best guess is to 1122. Um, we don't know exactly the year in which Eleanor was born, probably 1122, but it could have been something like 1124, but around this period, you know, we're around 900 years ago here. Anyway, whatever it was, 1120-something, Eleanor is born to Duke William X of Aquitaine and uh, his wife, right, whose name was Enor de Chatelleraud. Um, Aquitaine was uh, one of the largest and, and, and one of the wealthiest duchies in the Kingdom of France, and William X was therefore a very important and powerful bloke uh, who, you know, was sort of uh, very closely associated with the royal family. Obviously, the royal family of France want to keep their most powerful duchies on side. Um, and uh, growing up, young Eleanor had every opportunity, every uh, every opportunity was afforded to her by her by her dad William. There, uh, he ensured that she was well educated in everything from maths and history to bloody music and literature to riding and hunting, sewing and weaving, everything. Right, she got the the whole kit and caboodle there. She spoke Latin. She spoke uh, regional uh, French dialect of. Uh, I'm going to have a go at this. Poitevin, I guess, from, from around Poit the, 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 the ducal court was in Poitiers, the city of Poitiers, so I guess Poitevin. I don't know. I'm, I'm doing my best there. I do apologize again to all the francophones. Anyway, she was sharp. She was uh, energetic, very outgoing, enthusiastic young girl. But when her little brother, right, her little brother's just four, and he died, right, in 1130, and as a result, Eleanor became the heir to the Duchy of Aquitaine and therefore of increasing political interest as a future bride, of course, because she would be the duchess of the largest and richest uh, duchy in uh, in uh, in the entire uh, French kingdom. So this became uh, all the more sort of pressing an issue in 1137 
uh, when Eleanor was just uh, she was between the ages of twelve and fifteen because her old man died. He was out in a pilgrimage, and uh, William the Tenth he died, and this made Eleanor the Duchess of Aquitaine again. She could have been as young as twelve, maybe maybe up to fifteen years old, and therefore a very very politically important person as well as a very valuable bride as well. So um, any children that she would have would, of course, inherit the Duchy of Aquitaine. And this meant that aristocrats and even monarchs all throughout Western Europe were as keen as anything to wed her. You know, it's not just the children that would that would own the duchy. Also, you know, her husband would effectively become the duke and rule in more or less in his own right, even though it was her title, because obviously that's how, you know, these things worked back then. But um this wasn't actually good news necessarily for Eleanor, for young Eleanor there, because being an extremely eligible bride like this in the 12th century in Europe, uh, what it meant a lot of the time was that you ran the risk of being kidnapped rather than wined and dined. Kidnapping an heiress like this and forcing them into a marriage was actually a very normal and accepted way of seizing a title. And so Eleanor's personal security was very much at risk after her father had uh, died here. Luckily for her, however, her uh, her father had actually taken steps to make sure that she'd stay safe. He'd appointed none other than the King of France himself, right? Louis VI, known as Louis the Fat, uh, as her guardian. So this meant that anyone who was trying to make a move on Eleanor while she was still the kid would be making a move on the king himself. Not a wise career choice in the grand scheme of things to, you know, to, as they say, when you shoot at the king, you best not miss an old French proverb that dates all the way back to the times of Eleanor Aquitaine. Aquitaine. Anyway, so before William died, he went to King Louis, he said, listen, your majesty, mate, if anything happens to me, I'd love it if you could look after young Eleanor for me, make sure she, you know, snags a decent bloke as a husband, you can be the caretaker of the Dutch until then, no worries. And Louis goes, oh, mate, I'll take care of it, it is absolutely fine, don't even worry about it. He's obviously rubbing his hands because it means that he gets de facto control of the duchy while she's still a kid, uh, if William dies. And when William dies, whoo, he is loving it. Bloody, you know, well, well, not publicly at least, you know, publicly, Louis the fatty's going, oh, oh, terrible, terrible, that's... uh, no good. So sad. So so sad to lose William the Tenth. But privately, right? Louis bloody pumping his fist, running round, high five. Well, actually, he's no, he's not running around high fiving everyone because he's got dysentery, like real bad, and is about to die. But still, he's very happy about this. He's, he's bloody stoked because William dying now means that Louis the Sixth he's free to marry his ward Eleanor, right, to his own son, which who is also you know confusingly called Louis, um, and thereby bring the powerful Duchy of Aquitaine under the direct control of the French crown. Rather than just being a vassal, it's now going to be basically the property of the French crown as well, because it'll be, you know, because Eleanor's going to marry Louis and Louis VII, who will go on to be Louis VII, um, and any of their kids will just own, own it exactly outright. So fantastic, right? Anyone who has played Crusader Kings 2 will know, or 3 will know exactly how important, how big a deal this is here. Bloody excellent, you know. Son Louis VII is about to snag the most important Dutch in the kingdom, more or less for himself by marrying Eleanor, and then it will continue in, in that bloodline, of course. So within a few months of William's death, Eleanor marries Louis, the heir, um, and they are, I'll tell you this, they are the biggest royal power couple you can bloody imagine, mate. And check this out, right? Louis is not the heir for very long because within a week of the marriage, within a week of uh, young Louis marrying Eleanor here, Louis the Fat dies. Louis the Sixth dies and Louis the Seventh, Eleanor's husband, now takes the French throne for himself. So within a week of marrying this bloke, Eleanor is now Queen Consort of France as well as the Duchess of Aquitaine. And you'd think things would be looking up for her from this point onwards, right? However, as she settled down in Louis VII's court, it turns out that she's not all that popular. Eleanor, as I said, she's outgoing, she's extroverted, very enthusiastic young girl, and this doesn't go over too well in the French royal court. She's branded as flighty and immodest, particularly by the clergy, 
And many people see her as a bad influence on the young king. But I tell you this, King Louis, he doesn't care. He's absolutely head over heels for her. Apparently, she was stunning to look at. And he bloody pissed money into making her happy. He decorated a palace for her, just couldn't say no to her. Things are bloody going well for these two to... well. To begin with, anyway, a bit of a bit of foreshadowing there, mate. Core principle of effective storytelling. Don't even worry about it. Anyway, in the early 1140s, right, King Louis the Seventh, uh, he's married to Eleanor, but he got caught up in some religious conflict with the clergy, and one thing led to another um, until he, um, well, until he burnt down a church with a thousand people hiding inside it, taking refuge from his army. So, I mean, look, you know how it is. We've all been there. You try to appoint loyal bishops, the Pope disagrees, the next thing you know, you're bloody burning innocent peasants alive in a church as you sack their city. As I say, we've all been there. Anyway, this left King Louis VII racked with guilt. Can't imagine why, but this is where he was left. And so he decides, uh, in order to absolve himself of, this, of, of the sin of the guilt, he decides to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And this is bloody good timing too, because Pope Eugene III, right, he comes to King, he says, listen, mate, I'll do you one better. How about you lead the Second Crusade? We need some blokes go out and help out the the Crusader states who were established during the one you know first one 40, 50 years ago. These bloody heathens, they're at it again, attacking our you know rightfully invaded and conquered territory. They cheek the bloody nerve of these buggers. Um, but he's not going alone, right, Louis? He says absolutely, I'll, I'll go with you. But he's not going alone because in late eleven forty five, when he announces that he's off to give these you know blasted Saracens a hiding, Eleanor announces that she's going to go along as well. Her uncle Richard is the Prince of Antioch, and she's keen as anything to head over, get stuck in. She said she'll personally lead soldiers from her duchy as the Duchess of Aquitaine, so she's going to raise uh, levies from her personal holdings and bring... You can tell I play a lot of Crusader Kings. Anyway, um, and bring them along... <laughs> bring them along... Um, uh, with the uh, you know with with the rest of the um with the rest of the armies that are heading over there for the uh, for for this crusade, and so in eleven forty seven she and the rest of them they all depart. And the second crusade began in earnest, and um you might already know that it uh, it did not go too well uh for the uh for for the Christians overall it was a bit of a disaster for 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 the forces heading east, after making their way uh towards Anatolia and the Levant. Uh, these uh, these Christian forces, they, they received information, the French forces there, they received information that a German army had won a great victory against the Seljuk Turks. Excellent news, you'd think. Well, bloody done, you Germans, giving, uh, giving those Turks what for. There was one um, slight snag, however, with this news in that it was completely false. It was completely untrue. I don't really know where the this you know fake news emerged from but it's certainly true to say that uh, the opposite had happened and when the french armies came across you know the routed disheveled german survivors after you know going to find out more about this this great victory they'd won uh, they they discovered instead that the turks had absolutely wiped the floor with them so Together, the French and the remaining Germans, they begin to march towards Antioch and to Eleanor's uh, uncle Richard, but they suffered another terrible defeat at the hands of the Turks when uh, the Battle of Mount Cadmus happened. The French forces were split and they were crushed by the Turks. And Eleanor actually got a lot of blame for this defeat personally. Now, look, I don't know how true this is. And certainly, you know, there's, 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 you know, there's no other single example of men blaming women for this sort of thing in all of recorded history. There's not a single one, right? But it is said, and again, I don't know what this is. It is said that Eleanor was at fault for the defeat at the Battle of Mount Cadmus because Eleanor and her ladies in waiting were carrying too much baggage with them. 
which meant that one section of the army lagged behind while carrying it, splitting the French forces. Now, again, the historical veracity of this this blame game claim here is difficult to properly ascertain, but um, I would say that a more pertinent reason for the defeat is perhaps that Louis VII was an entirely inept military commander and did a very bad job of maintaining morale and discipline. But ah, look, whatever. Just blame it on the missus, mate. Don't even worry about it. Anyway, a lot of people did blame Eleanor for this and her relationship with Louis soured. I don't think uh, these two were getting on so well in the wake of the Battle of Mount Cadmus. Soured quite badly. When they got to Antioch, he even suspected her. And I mean, get ready for this because it just goes from one thing to another. He suspected her of sleeping with her uncle Richard. So she just can't bloody win here. She's being accused of bloody, you know, carrying too many, too much makeup with her, as, uh, and, and splitting the the French forces. And now, now her husband's reckon, reckoning she's bloody shagging her, her uncle. So she can't catch a break. Our poor Eleanor here. Um, Louis wanted to complete his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, while Eleanor she was like, mate, just let's just stay in Antioch. Like it's relatively safe here. Why do you, why do you need to go off bloody, you know, gallivanting off to Jerusalem? But Louis, he's having none of it. He forced her to come with him. And the rest of the crusade was as much of a dismal failure as, as, you know, as the first half of it. Louis' siege of Damascus in 1148 never really got off the ground. And after limping to Jerusalem after the failed siege, Louis and Eleanor, they just ended up bailing on the whole situation. And they turned around, tried to get back to France. They got on separate ships in order to do this. Uh, they, they were that pissed off with each other. They didn't want to share ships back to France. But I have to say this. Eleanor did make the best of this situation uh, in in another area, right? While she was uh, sort of mucking around with um, with maritime travel uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, because at this point, right, not only did she manage to develop a bunch of trade deals and agreements with port cities in the Holy Land, as well as Constantinople itself, of course, a massive city. Uh, she also became very interested in some of the conventions and the regulations of the sea that were starting to emerge, as I say, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And this is the area from which admiralty law would arise. You know, I'm talking about the conventions that would actually give rise to the uh, to the broad spread of what we have today as the laws of the sea. And, and, and this spread was catalyzed, not solely, certainly, but certainly was helped along by Eleanor of Aquitaine. She helped it, th- these conventions, these, these regulations, she helped them spread. She adopted many of them in her own lands, right, throughout the coastline of Aquitaine, and then a little later throughout England on top of that, when she finally became the Queen of England, as we'll get to. But right now, she's, she's still the Queen Consort of France, and I tell you what, this was a situation that suited exactly no one. After getting back from the Second Crusade, both Eleanor and Louis, they've had it up to the back teeth with each other. They, uh, they've just absolutely had enough. They've been able to produce a son, which is a big issue for Louis, because he wants an heir. They have, they've only had one kid, a daughter, and the situation is growing increasingly untenable for the two of them. As they're technically cousins, third cousins, uh, something like that, um, Eleanor suggests that they get their marriage annulled on the grounds of consanguinity. The Pope, however, old mate Eugene III, you remember him, he is having none of this. You two are married, he says. You're not getting out of it. Don't care if you both descended from Robert II of France 100 years ago. It's not relevant. You're not getting the annulment. Forget it. In fact, Eleanor at this point is more or less forced to go back to trying to having a son with Louis, you know, despite the fact they're not huge fans of each other. They they go back to uh, to try and have a kid, um, uh, but uh, even after she falls pregnant, she ends up giving birth to another daughter. So by eleven fifty two. Everyone has had enough. The stability of the French crown is in question without a male heir. Both Eleanor and Louis can't stand being married to one another. 
everyone's had a gutful of the whole situation. And so finally, on the 21st of March, 1152, Pope Eugene, he finally gives in. He annuls their marriage, again, due to consanguinity. And uh, within, consanguinity within the fourth degree, I think it is, because they're third cousins. They're third cousins once removed. Little bit, I think that's probably the clearest way to put it. Um, and as part of the annulment settlement, right, Louis gets the kids, he gets the two daughters, but Eleanor gets to keep her duchy. So it's a bit of a sort of status quo antebellum here with, uh, with Eleanor once again, Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. As for Louis, it would take him another two wives before he got the son that he, he, that he craved. Um, and one of, his daughter, one of his daughters would go on to, one of, uh, to marry one of Eleanor's sons. And one of his granddaughters, grandsons, sorry, would go on to marry one of Eleanor's granddaughters. So this whole thing, I mean, this whole thing, you need a bloody advanced basket weaving degree to unravel medieval European family trees. I'll tell you what. Anyway, Eleanor. She's single. Once again, she's a free agent. Time to bloody hit up medieval Tinder, see what's going on. And what is going on, of course, is just a whole bunch of kidnapping plots against her. How very romantic, of course. I mean, you know, there's there, none of this whining and dining business. Just pop her in a burlap sack and off she goes. That's it. So as she travelled back to Aquitaine, right, as she travelled back to Poitiers, two different counts attempt to kidnap her so as to seize the duchy with a forced marriage, but luckily they fail and Eleanor gets home safely. But she knows she's on borrowed time here as a single woman, and so she does everything that she can to quickly snag herself a new husband. And what she does is this, she sends envoys to the Duke of Normandy. He says to him, get down here, mate, get down to Aquitaine, quick bloody smart and marry me before some bastard comes along and kidnaps me. And this bloke is a, uh, this, this Duke, he's a bloke named Henry. He's the great-grandson of William the Conqueror. He's the grandson of King Henry I of England and the daughter of Empress Matilda, a claimant to the English throne, uh, the English throne at this point being held by King Stephen, who had seized, seized power when Henry I had died. Anyway, Duke Henry, he receives Eleanor's message, and despite being 10 years younger than her, he hurries off to marry her at all speed. Now, you'll remember, of course, that Eleanor used consanguinity as her excuse to get out of her marriage with Louis, consanguinity within the fourth degree. Well, check this out. Eleanor was even more closely related to Henry, consanguinity within the third degree, but that didn't stop her from marrying him. And I'll tell you what, it was a slap in the face, face for old mate Louis. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it, it's when your ex goes, oh, no, it's, it's not you, it's me, and then goes and finds a bloke with, you know, even bigger muscles and, and, and even thicker head of hair and still insists that that wasn't the problem, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that wasn't what brought you down. Of course it wasn't. No, it was you. It wasn't me, was it? Anyway, this marriage is, as I said, a, a real slap in the face for Louis, especially as, as Henry and, and Louis already weren't great mates. And with this marriage, Henry now controlled a huge proportion of the French kingdom through his newly acquired ducal title. So their relationship, you know, it soured quite significantly because this title delivered Henry all of the power and the wealth of Aquitaine, uh, which he put to swift use, uh, 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 as we'll talk about in a second. But it also basically just completely undercut the authority that Louis had been hoping to achieve by marrying Eleanor and try to, you know, sort of trying to unify his kingdom a little further by seizing control of the of the of the Duchy of Aquitaine. Now it's in the hands of a you know a a bloke who is a claimant to the English throne. And this claim that he has, as I say, is quickly pressed by the power and the wealth that Henry has just achieved by becoming the Duke of Aquitaine. He pressed his claim on the throne of England using, uh, you know, using the stuff, using everything that he'd gained from this marriage. 
Um, uh, Duke Henry and his mum Matilda, they'd been pressing the claim for, for, for years, but after this marriage with Eleanor's help, Henry was able to mount an invasion in 1153, and this resulted in a peace agreement rather than Stephen being overthrown. But the peace agreement said that when Stephen died, Henry would inherit the English throne for himself. And I'll tell you this, Henry didn't have to wait long. Stephen died in 1154. Henry became Henry II of England, and now our mate Eleanor is Queen Consort once again, but this time of an entirely different country, England. She's in her early 30s. She's already ruled two countries. Talk about an overachiever. Uh, Henry II, of course, in his early 20s. I don't want to call him young, um, because that'll make things very confusing when I tell you that Henry and Eleanor started having kids, and the second kid they had was also called Henry, and further went on to become known as Henry the Young King. So all these bloody names. I mean, you name your son after you your grandfather, and yourself. Unbelievable. Thanks very much for making my job that much harder. You know, old medieval uh, di- dynasties. Thanks so much for all the bloody Louis the 14th and 22nd and 500th. That's very difficult to keep keep track of you all. Anyway, Henry's succession to the throne of England, it created this empire. I talked about the relatively short-lived Angevin Empire, thanks uh, again to Eleanor's ducal, ducal holdings. Now Henry controlled the Kingdom of England, in addition to the Duchy of Normandy, the County of Anjou, and now the Duchy of Aquitaine, so he controlled more than half of France. Now, while these holdings were vassal holdings to the French King Louis the, the, the Seventh, nonetheless, it made Henry II one of the most powerful people in Western Europe. He controlled the, the, the Kingdom of England in his own right and then controlled half of France technically under um, uh, the French king, but you know this didn't matter. He was a king in his own right, so th- this caused a huge amount of friction between uh, between Henry II and Louis VII. Louis, as you can imagine, didn't like half his kingdom, belong, kingdom belonging to another king, even if those holdings were technically still under his crown. And so Henry and Louis, they have a very strained relationship at the best of times. And this isn't helped, of course, by the fact that Henry is rooting Louis's ex. It seems like Eleanor and Henry just can't keep their hands off each other because they go on to have eight children together. Um, the first William uh, died in infancy, but the rest reached adulthood and married. Um, not that they all led hugely long lives. Eleanor actually outlived all but two of them. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But let's talk more about this marriage because it was while the two of them apparently couldn't keep their hands off each other, they apparently also didn't get on that well. You know, at the best of times, the, the, these two they were fighting. It was it was a very fiery and and, and passionate uh, marriage that uh, that kind of burnt hot and bright, and and it wasn't too long before. Uh, you know, they, they were arguing and fighting and they seemed to be at each other all the time. And maybe this was because Henry developed quite a reputation as a as a, as a real philanderer. Um, he slept around like nobody's business, had bastards all over the place. Eleanor initially didn't seem to mind too much about this. She actually raised one of the bastards um, herself. But uh, there was all sorts of tension and strain in the marriage outside that sort of thing as well. For example, Aquitaine refused to accept Henry as its ruler, only accepted uh, orders from Eleanor, its original duchess. And uh, Eleanor also had a claim on the Duchy of Toulouse, a claim that was pressed while she was Henry's wife, although this was never successful. And, uh, you know, that, that was another sort of another thing that, 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 that strained their marriage a little bit. Um, but her patience for Henry's lovers, if it, I mean, if she was ambivalent about them to begin with, it, it finally reached breaking point when he started rooting a woman, well, I say woman, started 
rooting a 16-year-old named Rosamond Clifford. Um, this, this apparently, this affair was just one too many for Eleanor. Um, and it appears that Henry might have actually rubbed her face in it a little bit. He was clearly madly in love with Rosamond, didn't really care who knew it. Uh, and this was a bit much for Eleanor. So in 1167, she packed up her stuff and she moved away from the English royal court, basically for, well, not quite for good, but for the foreseeable, right? She was She was gone for a long time. And by all accounts, Henry was more than fine with this. In fact, he and his armies actually escorted her back to Poitiers, back to uh, Aquitaine, um, because it seemed he was well and truly on board with the separation. I mean, he's got a bunch of sons for heirs. He's got the bloody duchy. He doesn't need Eleanor around at all anymore, does he? I mean, what purpose is he serving for her? Or is she serving for him, I should say? Anyway, the arrangement, it seems to suit them very, uh, both very well. He went off to you know fight rebels or whatever and left Eleanor to rule over Aquitaine by herself in Poitiers. And it was in this period between 1168 and uh, 1173 that the legendary Court of Love emerged in Poitiers, Eleanor's uh, the, the seat of power in, in Aquitaine. And here's the problem, right? You may have heard of the Court of Love. You may have heard of this, as I say, legendary Court of Love. But the problem is we don't know just how legendary this court was. It's been written about extensively, but not very reliably. The long and the short of it is this, right? In this period, Eleanor fostered and combined the cultural expression of, of, of troubadours, you know, poetry, songs, and all the rest of it, the chivalry of, of, of medieval knights, and the idea of courtly love. Uh, she, she put all these things together. She combined them. This court of love in Poitiers, of course, acts of courtly love. You know, this is going to bloody slaying dragons for your one true love, you know, maidens and all that sort of stuff. Troubadours would perform, knights would, you know, go off and do these deeds of valour and honour and maidens would swoon, all, all the rest of it. Basically, the classical image that you have of a medieval court uh, that has obviously been exploited pretty ruthlessly by entertainment, entertainment media even today, this image that you have potentially owes a lot to Eleanor and her cultivation of these ideas in this, cult, in, in this culture in Poitiers. I have to say potentially, however, because it is not historically certain that any of this took place. The story goes that Eleanor and her daughter Marie founded this court of love, you know, staging performances, visited by knights. They're sitting in judgment of lovers' quarrels, entrenching all of these tropes that we associate with the Middle Ages. But whether any of this is actually true remains up for debate. It is, it is not up for debate that the stories that sprang up from Eleanor's time in Poitiers at this point are directly responsible for the popularity of that period in popular media and our modern conception of it. But whether it is historically accurate or not, there is no question, no question that this time had an enormous cultural impact on the Western world, even hundreds of years ago. Tales of courtly love and whatever else caught on in popularity, you know, in the 13th, 14th century, they're being told and, and have only been told and told and retold all the way through to the modern era. So, you know, in mainstream entertainment media today, when you think of knights and princesses and towers and whatever else, a lot of that comes from this legacy, the cultural legacy of Eleanor, even if we don't know for sure that it is 100% historically accurate. Anyway, the Court of Love, it didn't last long even if it did happen, because in 1173, young Henry, that is Eleanor's son with Henry II, he launched a revolt against his father. In 1170, young Henry had been crowned as King of England, even as his father, even as his father lived. They were supposed to be co-rulers, but he was the junior king. He had no real autonomy or any power delegated to him. And as time went on, Henry the young king, he sought lands of his own from Henry II. He wanted some of his inheritance up front, I suppose. He wanted some kind of, uh, you know, some, some level of power delegated to him, as, as I say. Um, and this, it reached a tipping point, finally, when Henry II gave uh, some castles not to Henry the Young King, but to a younger brother, John. 
So young Henry revolted against his dad, said, you're bloody giving castles to my younger brother. You're not giving anything to me. I'm sick of it. And quite a few people, I have to say, were sympathetic with Henry the young king. Henry II wasn't a popular bloke. And so Henry uh, the younger here, he did what a lot of young men do when they're in the need of a bit of support. He visited his mum. He headed down, he headed down to Poitiers, down to Aquitaine to get a bit of a hug and some words of encouragement. And I'll tell you what, he got a lot more than that. Eleanor backed him fully. She said, off you go, my son. You give your dad what for. You do it with my blessing. And why don't you take your other brothers with you? Not John, not him. But you take Richard, you take Geoffrey. You, you two boys, you go and join your older brother in rebellion against your dad. And on top of that, I'll go off and try to mobilize some other French lords against the English king as well. Apparently, you know, she just really didn't like her husband. She just really wasn't a fan of Henry II, it seemed. So as a result of all of this, a result of, you know, Eleanor's direct intervention in Henry the Young King's uh, revolt here, it picked up the pace enormously of this rebellion and a full-scale invasion of the English holding of Normandy took the fight to Henry Henry II. Remember, he was the Duke of Normandy. The revolt was ultimately unsuccessful and Eleanor did end up being arrested uh, by the English for her parts in storing it up, uh, in storing it up. Uh, despite her best efforts, unfortunately, she and her sons, they weren't able to topple this, her, her, her second husband as king. However, young Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, they all reconciled with Henry II, who, very, who, who realised he was in big trouble unless he brought his sons on side because, you know, this, this sort of discontent that not only his sons had, but his kingdom in general, him, him not being a popular king, uh, he, needed to, he needed to solve these problems. And so he reconciled with his children but he did not reconcile with his wife. And in fact, he locked her up. And he held her prisoner for, get this, the next 16 years. Clearly, Henry II didn't feel confident leaving her to her own devices. Perhaps he felt that you know he'd be able to control his sons, maybe, but not his wife. And so he kept her locked up. And she was held as an English prisoner for the next decade and a half. She was moved around England constantly. She was kept from seeing her children for much of the time. Um, the children, by the way, doing very well for themselves. Young Henry, obviously, is the co-king of England, if only technically. Her eldest daughter, Matilda, is the Duchess of, uh, of Saxony and Bavaria. Her second daughter, also named Eleanor, um, is the Queen of the Spanish Kingdom of Castile. And her youngest daughter, Joan, is the Queen of Sicily. So already she's the mother of three monarchs. And as I said, there are, there are a lot more to come. I can tell you that. Anyway, well, Eleanor was locked up. Henry II, he is still with Rosamond. Rosamond Clifford, you remember her? Uh, she's a bit old now. Eleanor didn't seem to be uh, huge on that whole situation being flaunted as it was. And in fact, there are actually rumours that Eleanor herself murdered Rosamond, either with poison or a dagger. But there's not much to suggest this is true. And certainly, you know, as, as a prisoner, it may have been difficult for her to gain access to the to the king's lover. Um, but, you know, when I say prisoner, you know, she, she's being kept in like nice castles and she's being treated as befits her station as queen. But She's still not free to, you know, go where she wants or, or, or do as she pleases. Um, and on top of that, you know, there's the whole business with Rosamond that's being rubbed in her face. And, and, and some have suggested this was actually a tactic to try to get Eleanor to, to seek another annulment. Uh, but she didn't. And she remained a prisoner of Henry II until 1189. Now, in 1183, six years before this, young Henry rebelled again. He decided that he'd had once again, he'd had enough of being uh, being kept in the, in the, in the background by his, his old man. But during this campaign, attempting to seize power from his dad, he got dysentery and died. So not a great result for him. And this led to a slight change of heart for Henry II, who, you know, obviously a terrible thing, even if you're a bad king, terrible thing to lose a son like that. And as a result of the death of young Henry, 
Henry II loosened the reins on Eleanor while still keeping her as a prisoner and, you know, under a, under a close watch. Uh, she returned to his side and would travel along with him, taking an active role in the governance of England. But for all intents and purposes, she was still a prisoner, you know, even if it was within a, a, a gilded cage. And so it remained, as I say, until 1189, when Henry II finally died. Now, the crown passed to Richard I, better known today, of course, as Richard the Lionheart. And one of his very first acts as king was to order the full release of his mother. And so Eleanor, once again, a free woman. And I tell you what, she took to the occasion with both hands. She seized the opportunities given to her because Richard, right, as you as you may know from, from a very popular piece of folklore, Robin Hood, went off famously to fight in the Crusades in 1190. And, and this meant that he left, more or less left Eleanor in charge of the kingdom. He did appoint other people, well, uh, he appointed men, of course, to, uh, to leave the, uh, to be officially in charge of the kingdom. But it was Eleanor who was, uh, you know, in many, in many respects, ruling on his behalf as Queen Dowager. You may have heard about this period of English history in the stories of Robin Hood, as I say, King Richard away on the Crusades, the evil Prince John ruling England, etc., all the rest of that there. And it's funny how just hugely historically inaccurate this is, because Richard, I mean, obviously Richard was on the Crusades, that did happen, um, but not for a lot of time because he was arrested and imprisoned in 1192 by the Holy Roman Emperor of all people. Um, the Holy Roman Emperor set a, set a ransom of a hundred, oh, sorry, a hundred thousand, hundred thousand pounds of silver, three times England's annual revenue. Um, Richard was arrested for an accusation of murder and he was held because obviously of this lucrative, ran- well, a king's ransom that he commanded, of course. And it was Eleanor that raised taxes and confiscated wealth in order to pay the ransom. It wasn't John. John was off plotting a way to take the throne for himself in, in France. He's whining and dining the French King Philip II, the son of Eleanor's ex-husband Louis VII, for those playing along at, along at home. He's trying to get alliance with the French so he can seize the crown off of, off of Richard. He's not ruling England, as you may have thought. You know, Prince John is not in charge of England, as you might have thought from, from, uh, from, Robin Hood, from the stories of Robin Hood. It was Eleanor who was, uh, you know, was raising taxes, as I say, and, uh, and and trying to put together this enormous amount of money uh, to ransom her son. So, you know, while Robin Hood and his merry men are traditionally all rebelling against the nasty Prince John, John's not even in England. He's over in France, and Eleanor was the one taxing the pants off of everyone so as to pay this extortionate ransom. It's, it's funny how Prince John cops the blame for the taxes and whatever else. I mean, he... He was a bit of a rubbish king, uh, as we'll discover. But uh, you know, uh, at the supposed time of Robin Hood, fo- the Robin Hood folk tales, he wasn't even in the country. So it's it, it's it, it is sort of funny how things go. Anyway, Eleanor, she avoided becoming the archvillain of a popular series of folk tales, and she welcomed welcomed her son Richard home in 1194 after paying this enormous ransom. And so this is now the fourth monarch that she's given birth to. Once he is, he's recrowned as the king of England to try to you know overcome the shame of uh, of, of being imprisoned. Um, and, uh, so he, you know, as the, as the fourth monarch that she has, uh, has spawned, uh, he's, he's also not the last. We're not finished yet because Richard didn't rule for very long. He died in 1199 after an arrow wound turned gangrenous. And this of course paved the way for John to take the throne. Oh, I forgot to mention, sorry, Geoffrey, the other brother. Um, he died in like 1186. So, like, he's out of the picture. Sorry about that, Geoffrey. Um, Eleanor outlived almost all of her children. I, I think I mentioned that earlier. And uh, King John, now as her youngest son, uh, he was known at the time as John Lackland because he never he was never expected to he never expected to inherit anything as the, as the fourth son. 
but uh, he he became king, and uh, he was uh, not uh, not uh, very not not a, not a very good one, as it turns out. He did not have the right temperament for the job. He was apparently very cruel, very petty, impatient, and angry. Um, but he did enlist his mum in helping help in uh, helping him run the kingdom. You remember that he had been flirting with the French King Philip II earlier, and now he's looking to secure a lasting peace between France and England because there is still this enormous tension between the two thrones because the King of England still owns half of France. Nothing has changed. You know, John has inherited all the titles that, that his brother and that his dad had before him, and so he still has the Duchy of Aquitaine, he's still got the Duchy of Normandy, he still owns half of France, and, and Louis is, is not a fan of this. So, Eleanor was called upon to organise a wife for the French heir, the 12-year-old who would go on to become Louis VIII. So, this is, again, very confusing. Louis VII had a kid, went on to become, would go on to become Louis VIII, and Eleanor was to choose one of her granddaughters in Castile. You remember that, that her daughter, also called Eleanor, was Queen of Castile, and arrange a marriage between young Louis and one of these girls in Spain. So, again, for those playing at home, Eleanor is now organising a marriage for her granddaughter and the son of her ex-husband's son. So again, bit of bloody basket weaving going on here. But what this ultimately meant is that in 1199, she set off from the English court to Castile. She's approaching 80 years of age, but she is still travelling around, politically wheeling and dealing. Don't even worry about it. She is still pulling the puppet strings uh, in, in the halls of power of Europe here. On the way to Castile, she was ambushed and taken prisoner for a while, but on, uh, she was uh, ultimately released. And then on the way back, after, after fetching one of these uh, granddaughters, the soldiers that were escorting her were attacked and some of them died. So there's no end to the action that her life saw. Even, you know, even approaching the age of 80, Eleanor is still you know, having a very, very rich and exciting experience. But she finally decides, after ensuring that her granddaughter would make it safely to the English court, Eleanor finally decides that enough is enough. And, 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 and she's, earned, she's earned a little bit of a rest. And so she moved to a little abbey north of Poitiers to just, like, chill out a bit after a lifetime of, of ruling and, and politicking. And there, in the coming years, she took the veil and became a nun. But not before she helped her son John fight off one last pretender, her grandson Arthur, who also claimed the English throne, staged a, uh, another revolt. But uh, Eleanor uh, stepped in on, on behalf of her son rather than her grandson. Just, just didn't stop for this woman. Just didn't stop. You know, she's, she's, she's pushing 80. She's in her 80s, maybe. We don't know for sure. And she's still bailing her kids out of trouble. It is just, uh, it, is, it is unbelievable that this, <laughs> this woman just, her, her political career just would not end despite her best efforts. Anyway, this would actually be the last time that she would become ma- majorly involved in, uh, in the cut and thrust of, uh, of royal politics at this point. Because after this, as I say, she became a nun. And she remained in this abbey until her death in 1204. And, and, and she left behind her, of course, a legacy of kings and queens across, across Europe, kingdoms and empires across England and France. And check this out. Within a decade of her death, the empire that she had helped to forge with her marriage to, to Henry II, the, the end of an empire, it crumbled. John lost almost all his French possessions in the Anglo-French War of 1213. Um, but the English claims on these lands persisted, and this led directly, of course, to the Hundred Years' War in the, in the 14th century. So Eleanor of Aquitaine's influence on the history of Western Europe, and in particular England and France, it really cannot be overstated. The Hundred Years' War was a conflict that saw 
five generations of kings fight for control of France. And, you know, much of the French lands under question had only ever been English because of our mate Eleanor. But it was so much more than her bloodline that makes her an iconic and very important figure in European history. Not only was she one of the richest and most powerful women in the entire medieval period, she also did everything from leading crusading forces to fomenting rebellions and revolts. Her active involvement in politics throughout the 12th century saw the histories of France and England change forever, not to mention other realms like Castile, Sicily, Bavaria, Saxony, where her children ruled as well. Eleanor is one of a few women to be known as the grandmother of Europe. But in this case, it's a title that is well earned. European history might have taken a very different turn had it not been for the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Eleanor of Aquitaine, a, a long and, and a very important legacy uh, enjoyed by this woman, by, the, by one of the grandmothers of Europe, and it was very interesting to learn about it. Anyway, if you'd like to submit a topic of your own for me to explore, please do. Halfhousehistory.net's the website, and of course there is a contact form there that you can use in addition to all the old episodes and links to subscribe. You can find the Patreon there as well. A special thank you to all the people who are supporting me on Patreon. Thank you for your... Uh, your unending support, both financial and, uh, and and psychological as well, just being there and uh, and listening to the podcast every week. And I guess that goes uh, to everyone else who's just, just listening to the podcast week in and week out. It does mean a lot that you continue to uh, share, you know, 30, 40 minutes of your week with me. Um, so so thanks so much for being here. And, and of course, uh, do do uh, me a favor and, uh, and tell your mates about it as well and uh, spread spread the word of this of this dumb weekly history podcast I very much appreciate it anyway that is that for another week of half Us history as ever leaving you this is a very important question this is this is one I really feel is neglected it's not even a history question it's more of a chemistry question although we have been talking about queens a lot today of course with uh, with Eleanor one of the most famous queens in European history so a very pertinent question for us to consider and one I think that really the chemists of the world should be, approaching more seriously it's surprising that they're not <clears throat> the question comes to us from ivan osokin here who asks when a queen farts which of the noble gases does she emit